This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hi, listeners. We're doing something a little bit different today. The American poet Louise Glick, who won the Nobel Prize back in 2020, has passed away at the age of 80, and she is something of a house favorite here. Uh, If you have ever heard me and Jeff refer to joking around about poets being in therapy, talking about how they couldn't make tomato plants grow, and you didn't know what we were talking about, that was a reference to the episode we recorded right after Glick won the Nobel, and we had taken some time to for me, read her work for the first time and for Jeff, revisit it. It was one of my favorite projects that we've done for this podcast in the last 10 years. And while we are very sad to have lost Louise Glick, we're so grateful that we had a chance to reflect on her work together and to have what has become a really memorable conversation. So before we jump in, I'm going to read to you the poem Vespers from her collection, The Wild Iris. It's the one with the tomato plants in it. And then we'll jump into the episode we recorded back in October of 2020 so that you all can revisit and appreciate Louise Glick with us. So without further ado, here is Vespers from the collection The Wild Iris from 1992. In your extended absence, you permit me use of the earth, anticipating some return on investment. I must report failure in my assignment, principally regarding the tomato plants. I think I should not be encouraged to grow tomatoes, or if I am, you should withhold the heavy rains, the cold nights that come so often here, while other regions get 12 weeks of summer. All this belongs to you. On the other hand, I planted the seeds, I watched the first shoots like wings tearing the soil, and it was my heart broken by the blight, the black spot so quickly multiplying in the rows. I doubt you have a heart in our understanding of that term. You who do not discriminate between the dead and the living, who are, in consequence, immune to foreshadowing, you may not know how much terror we bear, the spotted leaf, the red leaves of the maple falling even in August in early darkness. I am responsible for these vines. R.I.P. Louise Glick, we are so grateful for your work and your life. Listeners, we hope you enjoy the show. Today's episode is brought to you by Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye. Bone familiar Rosie spends most of her days in the Bone Forest, hiding her powers to avoid conscription by the Witch King's army. But when she saves the life of Princess Shaw, she's offered the chance to attend the prestigious school Witch Hall. And at Witch Hall, Rosie finds herself embroiled in political games she doesn't understand. Shaw wants Rosie as a partner to help lead the coming war. Meanwhile, all Rosie wants is to stay out of trouble but she can't really deny her attraction to Shaw. So the question is, will Rosie give in to her destiny or will the Bone Forest call her home once and for all? Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye is for all the magic school lovers. This immersive magic school is full of witches and familiars. It's also a queer normative fantasy world with a sapphic slow burn romance like we love. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Daughter of the Bone Forest by Jasmine Skye for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Entangled Publishing's Red Tower Books, publisher of the smash hit Fourth Wing. So this book I'm about to tell you about might be the next book talk, darling. It's a high octane fantasy adventure filled with risk, romance, action and sweet vengeance. In it, there are five liars who have five agendas, but only one target. So in Five Broken Blades from author Mae Corlin, the five most dangerous liars in the land have been mysteriously summoned to work together for a single objective, which is to kill the cruel God King June. Each has tasted bitterness, from the hired hitman seeking atonement to the lovely assassin dreaming of freedom, to even the prince exiled for his own crimes. This is a high-stakes game of treachery where the vengeance is sweet, the secrets are delicious, and each page deepens a journey that will keep you guessing until the very end. This also has themes of friendship, found family. You got a little bit of everything in this. Make sure to check out Five Broken Blades. And thanks again to Entangled Publishing's Red Tower Books, publisher of the smash hit Fourth Wing for sponsoring this episode. You know, so often we meet these Nobel Prize awards with 
I don't, the best case, a shrug has been maybe, you know, I guess in the case of, well, that's not true. We got Monroe. I thought with Dylan was interesting. Mm-hmm. Not I would agree with me. But I haven't been deli- as delighted in a, in a long time, maybe as, as an adult. I mean, Morrison won in 93. I was 15. I hadn't read any Morrison um, at that point. But for Glick, Louise Glick, apparently is how you actually say it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, she, her family says it. Um, this is where I'm, I was overeducated and underinformed <laughs> saying Glick, like a German, the, the, the proto-German speaker that I am did the unusual thing for me of reminding myself about a writer I really liked, which is weird because mm. I'm old now and I can do <laughs> things like this, but a, a service that the Nobel has never, or really any award has really done for me, frankly, it's like, oh yeah. And then getting an excuse for the epi- for this episode to dive back in. Um, I, I'd say my reading of, of Glick has been uh, superficial is too strong, but kind of just picking and choosing, and, and we can get into this in a little bit later, but I've got a lot of future reading ahead of me with Glick um, I'm really excited about. So I think for me, it was really a case of, oh yeah, and oh wow, and oh yes, <laughs> about um, how to be reminded and, and presented in a different way um, about Glick. I think I said to you, I can't remember if it was on air or, or off, that I th- thought you in encountering Glick would be very, very delighted um, and find something there to nourish you. Did that turn out to be right? It did. It really did. I had the lucky experience of, you know, like we know in the book world that when the Nobel gets announced and it's always a surprise and often it's an an unexpected person uh, that, Mm -hmm. you know, booksellers haven't had a chance to like stock up. And I got off of, I think we were talking about it on the podcast last week, and I hung up from that call and immediately started trying to find a local bookstore (laughs) that had any Louise Glick in stock. Um, And I lucked out, and I think I snagged like the last existing copy of her collected poems from uh, 1962 to 2012 at a Barnes & Noble down the street, like went and got Mm. it and came home. And I did a mix of flipping through and just sort of seeing what I had landed on. And then I read some pieces that you had mentioned as your favorites, and I'd asked our contributors about favorites and touched base with a few friends. And so that was sort of how I found my way in, you know, because mm-hmm. there was no way I was going to catch up on a 60 year long career over the course of like four, no. <laughs> four days. Um, and I, I really was just sort of my jaw dropped. Um, I, I was just blown away and I was like, oh, well, I, well, I, I get it immediately why this person won the Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was kind of also surprised because it does seem so squarely in my wheelhouse of the kind of uh, writing that I like and the kind of poetry that I like and the subject matter that I'm interested in in life that um, she hadn't really made it to my radar or been recommended to me yet. So, yeah, it was spot on um, that you knew I was gonna like it. I sat down on Saturday morning and just sort of had my heart ripped out of my chest a few times. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm a little mad at myself for not thinking to recommend Glick to you beforehand, though, in all, you know, in thinking about our biographical experience of how we how we encounter writers, and, you know, I'll talk a little bit about how I am interested in Glick and why I came to Glick in a particular time and place. Mm -hmm. It was of a different time in my life, like a pre-book ride time, you know, um, and we don't follow poetry closely here on this show, on the site writ large, and, and, and myself personally. So I guess if you would have asked me the day before the Nobel was announced, was Louise Glick alive, I would have been like, no. <laughs> it feels to me like she's a like almost... I like an I mean it's after and and I didn't know the biography at all really um I only knew the poetry and, and only some of that like uh, if you would actually tell, when was she alive you could have there's a certain of course it makes sense when you know more about her when she was working and is working but you could have told me she died in 1974 mm-hmm. and I would have believed you so there's a certain you know it's related to confessional poetry and concrete poetry coming out of some of those um, schools a little bit too, but also it has some modernity and other things that are really worth talking about as well. So I guess she was sort of out. She, I first encountered her in an anthology, which I guess tells you something because mm-hmm. an, an anthology is its own kind of like monument and monuments. Yeah. I, we associate with people who have passed on. But when I look at it again, it was at the end of the anthology and it was only her early work. And I didn't know that um, when really encountering for the first time. So delighted to find that she's a contemporary in a lot of ways. She's 77 years old. She, 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 she's older. But, you know, she's been around and working um, some of her most 
I, I guess, lauded books um, came out while I was a teenager in college, sort of an adult, right? A, a reading adult, which is exciting um, to have someone that I know a little bit and have more to discover there. I think, you know, the, the easy, there's not really an easy comp for any poet, um, except that sometimes you want to make a poet. I, you know, you're one of your favorite, one of our favorite poets is Mary Oliver. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they are connected in interesting yeah. ways. I think Glick is a lot different um, and, and not as popular as Mary Oliver has become insofar as a poet can be popular. And I think for reasons that I understand, I think Glick is a little edgier, more difficult, elliptical, I, you know, artistic, literary. I don't know where you want to go with this, yeah. but there's a sharper edge on there's, Glick. Is that right? What's your experience in comparing those two together? It is. And Mary Oliver was kind of the first person that I thought about when I got into uh, into this anthology that I or this really collected works that I have. And I was... I spent a lot of time in the Wild Iris collection, and we'll get into the details of that later. Mm-hmm. But there is so much um, in her work concerned with the natural world. And some of it really resonated with that same vibe that you get from Mary Oliver. And that was what made me be like, how has no one told me to read Louise mm-hmm. Glick before? <laughs> like, like yeah. what's going on here? But um, Mary Oliver is on the record as having wanted to be accessible. And like she really believed that poetry should have should be something that anyone could feel like they could approach it didn't need to be difficult or have that sharp edge to it and glick um i don't think stands fully opposed to that idea like this isn't the this isn't the most difficult or elliptical poetry that i've encountered like and she's not doing like what ann carson is trying to do um but it, it there is an edge and there's a like you have to take some beats to figure out what's going on uh, in some of mm-hmm. these. And I read a piece uh, this weekend in my research about her um, where she was responding to the Nobel and was saying that she had always sort of been concerned that winning wide acclaim would indicate a certain kind of accessibility or a certain yes. kind of dilution of the work that she wasn't sure she wanted to have said about her. Like you both want that wide acclaim or that there was a tension in that for her of wanting the work to be recognized and appreciated, but not wanting to find out that her work had been diluted enough for like the masses to enjoy it, which is such an... It's like the old, it's the old Groucho Marx. Yeah. Right? I don't want to be a member of any club that would have me. Like that, that, that acceptance would mean that the edge is gone and, to some degree, right? Yeah, and I'm, I, I think maybe the Nobel is fancy enough <laughs> that, um, that, it, sure. that winning the Nobel doesn't necessarily indicate that you've been, you know, widely accepted and that now the you know, lowest common denominator of readers are going to be into you or whatever. But right. it seems like she's she's going for something that makes you work a little bit. Um, and that does put her in a different, I think, just a different group of poets than like what mm-hmm. Mary Oliver had set out to do. And I think that makes them a really interesting, like, I have not done it yet, but I'm going to go Google because surely someone has written things, you know, comparing and contrasting yes. Mary Oliver and Louise Glick. And I think it makes them a really interesting set of writers to look at together. Look, you're never going to see a framed poster at Target of a Louise Glick quote. Like, it's just never going to happen. Like, it, no, but I'm serious. Like, yeah, if that's no. what she's worried about, that's there's none of that here. I mean, there's things that are revelatory and provocative and interesting. I'd say she's more challenging, uh-huh. not not in terms of difficulty than Mary Oliver, where Oliver tends to be more sort of affirming. Like, I think you feel better yeah. reading Mary Oliver, but I feel more stimulated reading Glick, to just give a, a very simple kind of uh, yeah, binary comparison. I, I think that's totally true, that Mary Oliver is like, the world is full of wonder, and let's appreciate them together, and even looks at the dark and difficult sides of nature and of human nature but you do end up feeling ultimately like it's all going to be okay and i don't think louise glick is sure that it's all going to be okay Mm -mm. (laughs) like the as a perfect like serendipitous example when i randomly flipped open my 650 page volume of her i landed on um a poem called mutable earth from the collection called vita nova and the first line i don't know that one okay well i didn't know it either jeff the first line is (laughs) are you healed or do you only think you're healed I t- oh my god <laughs> right i told myself from nothing nothing could be taken away but can you love anyone yet when i feel safe i can love but will you touch anyone i told myself if i had nothing the world couldn't touch me and it keeps going mm. and like she ends 
with the absolute erodes, the boundary, the wall around the self erodes. If I was waiting, I had been invaded by time. But do you think you're free? I think I recognize the patterns of my nature. But do you think you're free? <laughs> like, well, welcome to my Saturday morning and my new existential crisis. Yeah, well, <laughs> let's let's take our first sponsor break here. We should have done it before. And we'll do some biography because I think that, look, the, the fingerprints are all over every poet's poetry, right? Mm -hmm. But I think some biography will make this even more interesting as we go forward. Today's episode is brought to you by William Morrow. I'll be dead in three months. Come tell my story. Imagine someone told you that. That's what Sebastian Trapp, a reclusive mystery novelist, told to his longtime correspondent, Nikki Hunter, an expert in detective fiction. So with only a few months left to live, Trapp invites Nikki to his spectacular San Francisco mansion to help draft his life story, living alongside his beautiful second wife, Diana, his wayward nephew, Freddie, and his protective daughter, Madeline. But soon, Nikki finds herself caught in an irresistible case of real-life detective fever. Make sure to pick up End of Story by New York Times bestselling author A.J. Finn for a book that gives Knives Out, that gives White Lotus. You'll like this if you like books by Lucy Foley, Nita Prose, and others. So make sure to pick it up, check it out. And thanks again to William Morrow for sponsoring this episode. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by A Tempest of Tea by Hafsa Faisal. So Arthur Casimir is a criminal mastermind and collector of secrets. Her prestigious tea room transforms into an illegal bloodhouse by night because obviously it does. It caters to the vampires feared by society. But when her establishment is threatened, she has to make a deal with an alluring adversary. So Arthi hatches a plan to infiltrate the sinister, glittering vampire society known as the Ethereum. But not everyone in her ragtag crew is on her side. And as the truth behind the heist unfolds, Arthi finds herself in the midst of a conspiracy that will threaten the world as she knows it. So this is the highly anticipated next project from the author of We Hunt the Flame. It's got a fierce female lead. The story is fun and fast paced while also exploring significant themes like colonialism, prejudice, betrayal, and self-acceptance. I mean, it's got vampires and heists. Make sure to check it out, get into it, and thanks again to A Tempest of Tea by Hafsa Faisal for sponsoring this episode. All right, bio. Born April 22nd, 1943, New York City. Um, she doesn't identify as a Jewish poet, but she is using um, the, the sort of the tradition of Jews, a Jew. You know, her, her mom is a Jew, and her grandparents came from Hungary. Um, I think some of the identity politics or really the, maybe the stunning lack thereof in her writing is notable to talk about mm. on the whole, um, or at least the ways in which it's addressed is, is elliptical there. Um, her mom was a homemaker. Her dad wanted to be a writer, but you, here's another thing to say about Louise. Goes, she also has one of these biographies that was, feels like it was central casting to be a poet, right? <laughs> uh -huh. We're like, so, okay. So her, she had an older sister who died while young before Glick was born. And then so Glick's first collection of poetry is called Firstborn, right? So it's about, I mean, that's, it's almost a cl cliche is too strong. It's a personal trauma, but like this absence, this thing, you've got a writer, you're a frustrated parent. Um, there's some poetry about how her dad really like, um, I think, I think there's something like my mom wanted to float and my, my, my dad was ankle weights on her. It's like, Oh God, thanks a lot. That's great. Awesome. Um, and then he, Inv he, along with his brother, invented the exacto knife. So, which for Glick, your for your father who wanted to be a writer who invented a precise cutting instrument, like it's just too much. Like I just don't know what, like I don't have to do with my body right, with this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, Dwight Garner um, made good use of that in one of the pieces I read. I'm this sure weekend. he did. Yeah, yeah, that's a very Dwight Garner thing. Um, she struggled for a long time in her teenage years and adult years with anorexia, which made her formal education sort of piecemeal and desultory. Mm -hmm. It's not clear that she, she graduated with high school sort of under duress. Um, she went to Sarah Lawrence College, but and she then she took some um, classes at Columbia in poetry as kind of the non-traditional students um, path there on and off. Uh, she wrote her first work, you know, got some mention, then had six years of writer's block, 
wrote this other book, um, started teaching at Goddard College, met some people, had some breakthroughs, and then sort of over the course of, I think, um, Tides of Marshland, and then uh, The Triumph of Achilles in 85, and then by the time of Wild Iris, um, she won the Pulitzer Prize in 93 and sort of became one of the most important living work. She was a U.S. Poet Laureate, 2003 to 2004, won the National... She's won everything you can mm-hmm. win in American poetry. Um, there is no... Outside of the Nobel, there is no Booker Prize of Poetry, to my knowledge, which I'd never really thought about before, like a global mm. every year kind of a award, which is maybe a blind spot that someone could... Um, could could jump in. I'd love to know who the Louise Glick of, say, Guatemala is or something right now. I'd be fascinated to see what's going on around the world. Um, I think those are maybe the salient details. The other one, sort of bridging off the poem that you pulled out, and it's no mistake, like the Bayesian prior is most of the <laughs> most of Glick's <laughs> poems are about an analysis of the self of some kind. She she considers her seven and ongo seven really intense years of psychotherapy mm. her education which is fascinating. I think you and I have can a lot to we can maybe think about about what that is and how it influenced what her poetry is, which is mm-hmm. a lot of, I am looking at myself, looking at myself yeah. stuff, which is great. And I can't get enough of that meta-ness that goes into it. And one of the things you and I talked a bit about over time is our fascination with the idea of both online and off of how do you get better and can you get better at whatever it is just by wanting to get better or... Is it kind of um, just feathering the icing on the cake that is already baked? You can tell I've been watching Great British Baking <laughs> Show with that particular metaphor outside my normal parlance there. You know, the, um, those are advanced techniques. That is a, well, I mean, when you've watched 10 seasons, you got to learn, you got to pick up something. It's true. Got to pick up something. So I think those pieces are all really interesting in terms of the work like what did you do biography stuff what what else did what else i missed that you thought was interesting or among the things i've said what do you want to draw a special attention to you rang all the bells that i had pulled out i thought the exacto knife thing was super interesting and you know a a person who grows up to be a writer who had a parent who wanted to be a writer i feel Mm -hmm. like there's always something there like you're set up to be interesting in the same way that like someone who has two parents that are both therapists is bound to be a fascinating person (laughs) (laughs) it feels like oh of course or a complete mess or both right like interesting whether they're interesting in a messy way or not um the i think the difficulties of her childhood being sort of so overt um makes it really understandable how the work shows up to be so complicated like everyone's life has difficult weird challenging things in it but parents who have lost a child is that that's a huge thing to have shape your young life and your awareness of who you are Um, and then certainly anorexia and that like that really that time spent like so deeply analyzing and criticizing the self Mm -hmm. um, that her then I'm fascinated by her then being able to you know come through years of therapy and then translate that looking at the self and looking at herself looking at herself into mm-hmm. into her work but i it did resonate certainly as i was moving through the poems of like like none of this is light or warm like there are moments of light and moments of warmth but it's about um the gritty stuff of humanity mm-hmm. i think yeah um as we transition sort of themes technique and other things like that maybe one bridge of getting there is looking at her own avowed um, influences, mm-hmm. right? And again, not a surprise. I'm going to like Glick and you. And we're talking Emily Dickinson. Yep. We're talking Rainer Maria Wilke. Mm-hmm. We're talking Charles Oppen of the the Concrete Poets. Um, she studied under Stanley Kunitz, which was a name kind of forgotten now, but a big deal then. I think another. I'll expose one of my own biases as a Midwesterner. The the, the sort of cadre cabal going back to sort of conquered Massachusetts of New England poets, mm-hmm. I've always bristled against, right? <laughs> I, was, uh, it, seems, it seems cloistered and intellectually sort of incestual in its own way. I've just always found it kind of stultifying, which I like Emily Dickinson, but she also found it stultifying. Yeah. So I maybe have more affinity with her in that particular way. So I, would tend, I tend to grab away poetically to the Whitmans, the Ginsburgs, you know, kind of the, the, the exploding of the um, um, hermetically sealed. And it's not fair. I'm saying it's a bias. I'm not saying this is right. This is 
one of my mental models I'm always trying to fight against. So one of the pleasures of Glick for me is she's also kind of fighting against yeah. it. Like she's in it, like she's in the garden, but she's like also these these flowers might be trying to kill me um, <laughs> at the same time, which is, I think, for me, allowed entree into a sympathy that I may have not had otherwise with this. There, there is a school of New England poetry, even among poets, where it's like, aren't the geese flying overhead great? And I'm like, okay, sure. You know, like, you know what I'm getting at, but mm-hmm. it's not that, and that's unfair, but I always have to overcome that. And I think one of my problems with Glick, even before you know, I had encountered in a different kind of a way, would have been... And it would have been like, okay, uh, poems about flowers. I know flowers are wonderful. I get, you know what I mean though? Like it's tough. It can be tough. Yeah. I think there's actually, I think it's pretty reflective of the tension that exists in New Englanders relationships with nature and with the seasons and with like being outside when it's largely uncomfortable (laughs) for, (laughs) for a huge chunk of the year. And then it makes the season where things are light and blossoming seem like you have to really appreciate it and treat it as if it's magical. Um, And she is there, you know, wrestling, as you were saying with like, I'm in this garden and it's great, but also like, what are we doing here? And it's bringing up existential terror. (laughs) Um, I was thinking about this. I took this philosophy course in college that I didn't understand most of it until like a decade later um, that spent a ton of time talking about the difference between like the beautiful and the sublime. And I feel like I've landed Uh, in a place of thinking about that where like Mary Oliver is getting at largely like the beautiful or the sense of awe that we feel in the face of nature, even in the face of dangerous parts of nature or the painful parts of human nature. And my experience with Glick felt much more akin to like the sublime or just um, that looking at it is scary in some ways. Um, There's something kind of, there's a terror at the heart of some of this that feels really, really Mm -hmm. human and like right under the surface, like you could, you could just touch it. Um, That sort of poking a bruise feeling. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating to see um, in terms of the style of the poetry. We're going to spend the the last bit of the show looking at one poem in particular and sort of using it as a bridge to think about biography and styles and other things that goes out. This is not rhyming poetry. Mm-hmm. There's not much rhythm here. It also is in it's in that um, what's that Ron? It's sort of a Ron Swanson parody <laughs> part of like anyone can write poetry. Mm-hmm. You know, like oh look, it's. It doesn't have to rhyme. It doesn't need... Like, what is the craft, right? If it's just a bunch of words in a row, okay, there's in Jammin and Caesarea, but that's you just end the, sen- you end the line in the middle of the sentence and move on. Congratulations, you're a poet. I think there is some... Fa- I actually think there is some fairness to that kind of critique of like, okay, just because you ended... You, you broke the line in the middle of the sentence, congratulations. But it also is deceptive, complicated and one of the um, essays I read a long time ago and I couldn't find a pr- I don't know what happened I think I had a print version of one of her essay collections but she w- taught one she talks about the education of a poet and it's a line I saw actually repeated in some of the retrospective mm-hmm. work that came out more around the publication of the volume that you have in front of you um, a line she she says something to the effect of you know I was never one of those poets who was 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 awed by words like incarnadine, right? She's not, the language play, Mm -hmm. like reveling in language for its own sake is not something she does, right? This is simple language here. I mean, this is not Eliot. It's not even, I don't even know. So you can read it with a fifth or sixth grade well, maybe a little bit more discriminate immune, I'm not sure. But you're not going to be like, what does that word mean? Or what the hell is going on? You may wonder what it means, the whole thing, but on the level of phrase or line or adjective or noun, it's quote-unquote accessible. But I think that is deceiving in a way I find really pleasurable too. Yeah, I completely agree. The, the language doesn't like you don't open it up and think oh i'm gonna have a hard time with this and the poems aren't arranged mm. in like just visually on the page they're not in, arranged in a way that calls any attention to how they're yeah arranged right. you know and she didn't decide not to capitalize letters you know there's no like performative use mm. of the form um and certainly there are you know real and interesting and artistic reasons to do those things but she's just not 
she's not interested in that. And I appreciate something that looks like it's going to be straightforward and then makes you ask a lot of questions about it, um, which was the experience. That's what happened to me um, flipping through these <laughs> and reading, like you had said, um, you know, read Vespers. And when I looked in the index of my collection there are like seven poems called vespers and i don't think i knew that see yeah. i'm just see i'm looking at anthology stuff yeah so I, I and then i didn't even know that yeah there's like seven poems called vespers they're all from wild iris and it's like you know a couple of them are in a row and then there's a poem called daisies and then there's like night lilies or something you know, i could look and tell you for sure but there's a vesper mm. and a vesper and then several other things that are named after like parts of the natural world and then a couple more vespers and those ones that are that come in between the vespers it took me a minute of reading them to realize like in the vespers and of course like we can talk about this when we get into our close read later but Mm -hmm. a vesper is an evening prayer and it's what you're doing at the end of the day and um she's she's asking questions in the vesper poems and then the other ones are those elements of the natural world like responding to her and there's nothing that hangs a lantern on it It it's just like those landed differently and i had to sit with it and be like oh right that is what's happening and then the earlier poems in that collection are called matins and the matin is the morning prayer and those are Mm. also interspersed with responses from elements of nature and like maybe the wild iris collection has an introduction that says some of this stuff but there was no i highly doubt <laughs> yeah, there's like there's <laughs> there's no introduction in this like whole collected works there's no like letter from her editor there's no like big note from her about looking back on her career which i think in itself is interesting that there's like here is 60 years worth of a poet's work good luck to you mm. <laughs> you know with, with yeah that's tricky too for someone like glick especially i'm sure all maybe dickinson you could dive in you know it doesn't matter kind of what order maybe in a biographical way but one thing glick does in multiple volumes and i can't say I've, I've read them all so some of this may may be only partially true she likes to inhabit a bunch of different points of view and the collection i know as a collection the best is the triumph of achilles one where she's inhabiting these mythological figures Mm -hmm. and writing from her point of view through their lens about the various issues that they represent, what their stories are and what the Louise Glick figure sees if looking through the eyes of Circe or looking through the eyes of Patroclus or looking through the eyes of Achilles himself. My first real outside of having to read some Glick as a part of an anthology, as a part of a survey course where I came to on my own turns is I was trying to figure out how to make sense of the Iliad for myself. And then when I was trying to teach it, how to make sense of the Iliad for students, right? Like how do I find something here? Um, that isn't just, here's a poem that was written 2,500 years ago about things you don't care about and places that may not have exist in a mythological and historical structure that has largely been commodified to the point of not understanding. So what's the nut of, what's the, nut of the thing here that I can jump down to? In the triumph of the Achilles, Achilles, the inversion, the poet's inversion is so beautiful because Achilles is someone we think of immortal and dying. It's like kind of a fall, right? Well, what, what does the triumph of Achilles really mean? Well... For Glick, it's that he embraced mortality. He didn't run from it. He did, wasn't scared of it, but ultimately lived the life and cared about the thing he was going to care about, knowing full well that it was going to end in his death and somehow being okay with that. And, you know, that's one of the great questions we have of all human life is how do you come to terms, if you can, mm-hmm. with the fact that you are going to die? And Achilles didn't have to die. But he chose the thing he chose, even with the, the, the amazing price he was going to have to pay to, um, to, to believe it or, or to, to realize it. Now, we all don't get Achilles' choice, um, but for someone like Glick, who, when she, you know, she, she says in some of our autobiographical stuff, like when she was most sick with anorexia, she realized that she could very much die and she really didn't want to. So this is not death poetry, I guess, is one thing to think about Glick, too. This is not sort of a, uh, you know, a, a Thanatopsian um, fascination, you know, lauding. It is really more of how to be in the world when you know what comes after the Vesper prayer, right, of your own life. You know what's going to happen and there's no avoiding it. How do you come to terms and live with it? You know, famously, that's Freudian, right? Like we're all going to die and that's all, we're all doing the stuff to get out of the fact that we're going to die. But are there alternatives to denial, rejection, uh, obliviousness, or delusion? You know, how can you be 
illuminated, <laughs> right, about your own position in the world and its unavoidable costs, but then to either embrace those or put them in your hip pocket and carry them with you and still do the thing, right? How is that possible? Can it be possible? And I think one thing most people who wrestle with this with anything like success find is there is no promised land at which point you have figured it out and you are fine. It is a constant mm -hmm. writing of poetry. It is a constant of volunteer. It is a constant of whatever the constant is. The, the solution is in the doing. Um, and I think that becomes clear when you look at like these long stretches of writer's block that Glick has had, how she talks about her own writing, what the function of the writing is for her own life. And I think maybe part we could connect it back to that desire to not be commodified or quote-unquote popular because I think the idea that she is essentially wrestling with can never be popular in that kind of way because it's too uncomfortable, yeah. right? So if, if it becomes accepted, that means she'll have missed the mark because by its nature, it has to be discomforting uh, uh, in a real way. So there we go. That's, <laughs> that's kind of the, that's where I'm going with the, what's at the root of the root thing. Mm -hmm. Now, this idea about um, writing about the self and not being subjective is really interesting from a psychotherapy kind of way. The ability to move outside of yourself or into, into other points of view to examine, right? The idea that if you get outside of yourself and look at yourself from a different angle, you may learn something that you didn't, right? Well, then ex if you extract that, then, well, what if I think about the world as if it's an iris or a goose, um, to use my own uh, cliche <laughs> about it, or Cersei or my dad? Or my sister who was who died as a, as a very young person, or as drowned children, one of the more controversial um, short poetic sequence called The Drowned Children, too, as well. I think that multi-perspectiveness is a way of using small subjectivities to try to find something like an objectivity. You know, not, not the objectivity, but a kind of aggregate sensibility um, that's really interesting, too. Uh, let's do another break, and then um, we may be we may be ready to get into the poem. Today's episode is brought to you by National Geographic Books. The Cave is the incredible memoir of Imani Balur, a young doctor and activist who ran an underground hospital in Damascus, humanizing the enduring crisis in Syria. The only woman to have ever run a wartime hospital in Syria, she saved many from the atrocities of war while having to face the patriarchal conservatism around her. Amani Balour is a game changer. Listen, she will be remembered as one of history's greatest. She's a passionately committed humanitarian, and she is determined to help others escape the horrors that she survived. Make sure to pick up the memoir, The Cave by Amani Balour and Rania Abuzaid, for a memoir that expands on the 2019 Oscar-nominated film by the same name, which documents her experience running the hospital, shielding children from horrific sarin attack, losing colleagues, trying to employ more women in the hospital, and eventually leaving and becoming a refugee. So make sure to read about this amazing woman. And thanks again to National Geographic Books for sponsoring this episode. Anything else from a first reader's point of view, Rebecca, that you notice questions, things that rubbed you the right way, the wrong way? Or Ooh. can you say anything more about your experience of, of thumbing through the glick before we um, narrow the attention at all? Man, I just really wish that I had encountered her earlier, but I also think that this was a perfect kind of experience to come to a poet not knowing anything. You know, I like to go uh, in, I like to go into a book cold, and I think going into a poet cold and having to do for me this felt like the right amount of work, or it was like the right amount mm. of difficult. Like when a poet or a writer trusts the reader to figure out what they're doing. Um, and yeah. it's, there's not a lantern hung on it. There's not a, an introduction that tells you, hey, this is how this thing is set up. Um, there's a, a challenge there, but it's done. I think she's so good at what she did that you can get there. You know, like it's mm -hmm. not intentionally obscure. Um, it's not let me make you work just for the sake of making you work. And for that, I'm, you know, I'm really grateful. There are poets especially that I've thought like, well, if I ever really wanted to get into this poet, I would want to like do it in the context of 
a class or I even feel that way about like going back to Faulkner, you know, like I would Mm want to do this with somebody who really knows what's happening here and can guide me through it so that I can appreciate the whole thing. And despite Gluck not wanting to like be popular or be accessible, I think that for like a thoughtful reader who will spend the time and it's worth the time, you can get a lot out of it without a guide. Um, And there's something lovely. And I think that should be celebrated about that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I didn't get no. far enough in to find anything fine, that, uh, yeah. that rubbed me the I wrong really, way. I really like that idea of it being a bit of a stretch, but not something you need a guide necessarily to deal with this stretch. You know, it's like there are hikes here in Oregon that are very, very popular, and they're beautiful in their own way, but they're not much of a stretch. Then there are also, you can go backpacking in the woods for 18 right. days, you know, something like that with guides. <laughs> but then there are these others, the middle ground between those two things are things that might, you have to drive a little bit farther, you got to do a little more research about where to go the, the hikes are going to be a longer they're not going to be around amenities and it's more of a it's more of an adventure i guess it's it's not dangerous and you, you but it's an adventure you can strike out on your own with and i think that is that describes in a lot of ways one of the great pleasures of glick is mm-hmm. this is an adventure you can strike out on your own with you're not going to read three pages and be like i got this figured out but you're also not going to hit a wall and be like, oh, my God, I need, you know, crampons and carabiners <laughs> and the whole thing right. um, to get up this particular mountain. Would you this is so what we're going to talk about for the rest of the show mm-hmm. or, or at least as long as we'd like here is um, this poem Vespers, as you said, uh, you, you DM me is like, which Vespers? I said the one with the tomato plants. <laughs> so it's the one with the tomato plants from the 1992 collection Wild Iris, which did go on to win the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. Rebecca, would you mind reading the poem? You're such a beautiful reader that um, I think that's probably best. It is, yes. And if you, like me, have the collection of Louise Glick, 1962 to 2012, this is the Vespers on page 279. Oh, and there'll be a link in the show notes because it's also on uh, poets.org. So it's also available there. You can find it. In your extended absence, you permit me use of earth, anticipating some return on investment. I must report failure in my assignment, principally regarding the tomato plants. I think I should not be encouraged to grow tomatoes, or if I am, you should withhold the heavy rains, the cold nights that come so often here, while other regions get 12 weeks of summer. All this belongs to you. On the other hand, I planted the seeds, I watched the first shoots like wings tearing the soil, and it was my heart broken by the blight, the black spots so quickly multiplying in the rows. I doubt you have a heart in our understanding of that term. You who do not discriminate between the dead and the living, who are, in consequence, immune to foreshadowing. You may not know how much terror we bear, the spotted leaf, the red leaves of the maple falling even in August in early darkness. I am responsible for these vines. Well, I don't know. I could do, what do we do in a Socratic way? How do you want to go about doing this? Did you like this poem? Are we surprised that this is the one that I was like, let's do this one? Or what do you think about this? Well, poem? now that I know that. that there are like seven Vespers, it's not my favorite of the Vespers. Okay. A fair, fair, <laughs> but, fair, But fair. I, d- okay. I did, I did like it and it grew on me. Actually, I really liked it from the very beginning. I loved, I must report mm-hmm. my failure in my assignment principally regarding the tomato plant. It's a little bit funny. <laughs> Which is a little unusual for Glick. I mean, this is as like this is as broad as her humor gets, right? It's a, it's irony because right, this is Vesper, so it's a prayer, right? Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, which we'll come back to at the end of the poem, but a prayer to whom, in your extended absence, you permit me use of earth, anticipating some return. This is Genesis, shit, right? This yeah. is I grant thee dominion over the earth, and her little earth is tomato plants, which is an interesting choice of the garden because this collection is wild irises and tomatoes we don't think of as a flower but they are of course the Mm -hmm. fruit of the tomato flower is the tomato but this is not about tomatoes and this is also not about flowers this is about the plants themselves and how she's what this is she's having trouble with her damn garden she can't grow tomatoes here rebecca right that's what's happening right and she's in Vermont, presumably. Like there that, you go. So it, right. it's it gets cold there, and sp- like spring comes late, and summer doesn't last long. Um, I right. think it starts off so interestingly, like in your extended absence. So yeah. we're in a prayer, um, presumably to a god of some kind or nature, Mother Nature, perhaps I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. But th- that entity is gone. You know, it's not like uh, she's not in the garden communing with nature or communing mm-hmm. with 
God, this isn't growing tomatoes as spiritual practice, you know? <laughs> no, it's just, you're anticipating, I mean, it's some return on investment. It's transactional, right? Yeah. Like, go forth and multiply is, you should do more with this crap that I'm leaving you with, or sort of, you know, in the in the Garden of Eden sort of situation. Right. Yeah. There's a real, like, sense of duty here. Like, I'm growing these tomatoes, and I have to come back and tell you, like, it's not going well. <laughs> right. And, and, and so that's funny, it's funny, but it's also sad right i was we were given dominion over the earth god gave us dominion over the earth to just do whatever and i can't even grow a fucking tomato plant right <laughs> there's a certain desperation i think that that humor mocks that i th- i find so pleasurable and relatable as someone who doesn't have a great green thumb either yeah and you know she says it was my heart broken by the blight and then later on near the end you may not know how much terror we bear the spotted leaves mm-hmm. the red leaves of the maple falling even in darkness in or even in august in early darkness and so it's not just like i can't make these goddamn tomatoes grow but like everything about being outside here is mm-hmm. is hard and i can't make the tomatoes grow and summer is short and the leaves are turning even though it, the summer's not even over yet and darkness is coming yeah. and Right. Ugh. You know, it's like darkness is coming yeah. and all is lost. And I was responsible for these vibes. Right. <laughs> and so, so going back to what you do, even even if you know darkness is coming. So one of the great questions, right? Um, my great uh, poetry professor, Marcellus Blunt, rest in peace, died last year, said, when in doubt, assume the poem is about poetry. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's not a, not a horrible way to get started, especially with poets of a certain ilk, sort of the, the modern poets, the classic poets generally wasn't about poetry. And I mean modern sort of Keats and Ford, let's say. So if the tomato plant is poetry itself, and we know a little bit about Glick's background, it makes sense. She she can't grow tomatoes the way she wants to because. So the because is interesting. Because of why? Well, is it because of where she is or is it because of what she's trying to grow? Things grow in Vermont. Mm-hmm. But tomatoes are not the best choice, Right. The other regions get 12 weeks of summer. Tomatoes come from Italy. They come from the Mediterranean. Of course, tomatoes grow there. We have to build greenhouses in most places of the non um, sort of sem- subtrop- or semi tropical Mexico, California, or Florida. So we're doing something unnatural, right, to grow tomato plants in these kinds of environments. Now, why do we do that? Why do we grow tomato plants in these kinds of environments? That's the question. That's the kind of question I ask my students. I don't have a good answer. To keep us from thinking about death. <laughs> well, but why not just be happy with the apples, right? Or why not be happy with the potatoes? Yeah, and and then she holds, I don't know, this God that she's speaking to, responsible for making it go well for her. Also, like, yes. I, I think I should not be encouraged to grow tomatoes, or if I am, you should withhold the heavy rains, the cold nights that come so often. Like, at least try to make it easy on me. And I think there's something there about, like, I'm just doing this human toil thing, and you're not Mm -hmm. helping me out at all. That passive voice, I think I should not be encouraged to grow tomatoes, is interesting because passive voice, as always does, hides the actor of the... Who is doing the encouraging here? Mm -hmm. Is she implying that this you is encouraging here? Is she encouraged from her own self? I think it's... My reading would be... We grow tomato plants because that's something you're, you think you're supposed to grow in gardens. Like it's sort of a, a ready-made answer to, what am I supposed to do with my garden? What am mm-hmm. I supposed to do with my poetry? What am I supposed to do with my life? Well, tomato plants is something people grow in their gardens. Maybe I'll try that. Even if you or the place you are live in is totally unfit for growing that thing, we will still do that thing that we think we should do without looking at it with any kind of self-awareness. Like, do I care about growing things at all? And if I do, what is it that I care about? Is it I care that I can grow a tomato? Is it, or do I care that I can grow something that lives, that survives, that gives nourishment, that gives, you know, that bears fruit, mm-hmm. that, like literally and figuratively bear fruit, which I think is really great here, right? Because tomato plants are, is that probably the, the first thing you think of? If someone has a garden, what's your draft board of what they're going to have in their garden when it comes to edibles? Probably tomatoes number one, mm-hmm. I would say, probably. Yeah, I think so. Which I don't know. Maybe there, there's probably other things you should grow in Vermont in the summer. You've got friends in Vermont. Ask them what, what thrives in, in uh, <laughs> what should Louise Glick been have been growing in Vermont gardens in the summer of 1990. Ironically, my Vermont friend just spent like an entire weekend canning the explosive amount of tomatoes that came from her. Yeah, right. So there was some success. Yeah. There was some success there. Um, but yeah, I think what 
what you're saying about like, we just we do these things because we think this is what I'm supposed to do. And as you were talking mm-hmm. about that, I was having this sort of image of like imagining Louise Glick like in her therapist's office and a therapist being like, so you're growing, <laughs> you're she and she's like these tomatoes. <laughs> and <they're, laughs> Right. just like how does that make you feel and yeah you no know, i've had some therapy this is how it goes and she's like i'm trying and like it keeps getting cold and it's rainy and there's leaves turning already and at some point the therapist is going to be like well why do you care about these tomatoes so mm. much and that why do you care about this why are you doing the work that you're doing or why are you doing whatever it is in your life often it's mindless stuff that we're doing um that there's always a why behind it and it, knowing that she had spent so much time in psychotherapy and knowing that like meta level that shows up in the poetry too i think that's really it's really interesting that there's like why is this a prayer when it's so angry mm-hmm. <laughs> you know why why are we invested in this thing that she's doing this growing the tomatoes why does she care about growing the tomatoes there's all this stuff about like being in the gardens and looking at the daisies and like but none of it it doesn't seem like it's nourishing to her this is not mary oliver you know like wandering the field and that's how she spent her wild and precious life you know this is a like Mm -hmm. there's real pain here and i think she's trying to untangle what that is um, interestingly, yeah. a few poems later, early darkness responds. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. I like that. Right? It's that time of year where the early darkness, especially here in Portland, where it's you know it's it's creeping up on us too. Uh, close reading tricks one hundred and one. Let's do a couple of them. One is look at right in the middle of the poet the poem, and the other one is where do you get a turn of some kind? Where do you get a a shift? And both of these nicely happened right after this. While other regions get twelve weeks of summer, she says. All this belongs to you. So all this meaning the 12 weeks of summer, other people get the cold nights, the heavy rains that mm-hmm. happen. That's all your shit. You did all that. And then there's a colon and a turn. On the other hand, I planted the seeds. So it means I chose to do anything at all, right? I could have just mm-hmm. enjoyed the rains or whatever. And I planted the seeds for tomato plants. I could have chosen other things. And then I did other things. I watched the first shoots like wings tearing the soil. At first blush, it feels like, well, that's just what poets do. They describe stuff happening in fancy language. But I think it's a little more than that there because she could have planted the seeds, but she chose to watch the Mm -hmm. shoots come through. She chose to give them identity outside of being plants by having wings, right? Tearing the soil, having an action of like struggling. Mm -hmm. She's now endowing those damn little tiny pieces of green tomato plants with something like subjectivity. These are things that I care about. So not only has she planted the cheese, but she's chosen to care about what happens to them, which is sort of the second arrow here, right? Of choosing something that maybe shouldn't have been grown here, but then investing in and care, not investing whether or not they work, but that they're not working isn't, the pain isn't just that they didn't work, but that something alive has been killed mm-hmm. or you haven't nurtured it. So you weren't sufficient to nurture this thing. That should be so simple. It's a tomato plant. They grow everywhere. And I have this little baby tomato and I killed it. Right. Or I, at least I couldn't do it. And the next plant is, and it was my, it was my heart mm-hmm. broken by the blight. She says earlier, you don't have a heart. Like we would understand what a heart looks like that black spot. So quickly multiplying and so you see one and then all of a sudden it starts infecting the other things and the whole, I don't know enough about, really, I don't know enough about anything, but to me, like, is this a common situation in certain climates? Is the black spot determinative? Does it mean for sure you're, not only will you not get tomatoes, but that your plant might die? Or is it, or is it like getting, or, or, this, or, or is it more like, um, oh, well, there's, there's something on your CT scan, mm. you know, it's kind of, is it one of those? Or is it you have stage four glioblastoma? I don't actually know, but I, I think it, it could be either, and both of them are interesting in this one time. Now we get another turn. I doubt you have a heart in our understanding of that term. You do not. You who do not discriminate between the dead and the living who are, in consequence, immune to foreshadowing. Meaning, if you are omniscient, you know what's going to happen. You know, mm-hmm. you knew what did. You knew what's going to happen. There's a simultaneity of omniscience that she's implying here. That means causality and story sequence doesn't matter. So you already know what's going to happen because it's already happened in your mind. 
So what you don't get is dread, right? I think that's the that thing at the end here is dread, mm-hmm. right? And dread of, I mean, can you have a sense of what the dread she's so, how much terror we bear in the spotted leaf? Okay, that's that's more disease, right? But then we turn again to the red leaves of the maple falling even in August, which is typically like leaf peeping or going to drive. Like this is good. Red leaves and in, in, in falling is. New England poetry, cliche, embroidered pillow 101. So what's, what's going on here? I think red leaves of maple falling even in August, that like that, that yeah. even is important, that it's yeah. it's happening soon. It's happening early, you know, mm. that you're, you're ready for fall in like September, October. And if the red leaves are showing up even in August, like we don't even get to enjoy summer yeah, fully right, because right. the indicators and reminders that summer is going to end are already appearing and there's dread of that of the like of the season of darkness i do think there's dread here of i am responsible for these vines Mm. of what comes after what comes after this thing that doesn't have a heart when when it knows that she couldn't grow the tomatoes you know is there sort Mm -hmm. of like a kind of an existential dread or judgment um and i do think a lot of it really is like i was joking about like we do these things because it keeps us from thinking about death but like but i do think that there's a a good dose of um trying not to think about the darkness in glick and a lot of it is her sort of looking out of the corner of her eye at these really dark painful things that we have to look at if we are to do the work, if we are to get better in some way. And certainly someone who spent seven years in psychotherapy is interested and concerned with that. And then someone who spent 60 years of their life writing poetry is interested and concerned with with understanding the human condition in some way. And a a lot of it is how do we make sense of the, of all of this? We we're here, we have to do things for these, you know, limited years that we're here. And then what does it all mean in the end? Mm. And for her, you know, it, it means I couldn't even grow the tomatoes yeah. and fall I couldn't even grow them. Not only that, that this last phrase, this last independent clause, I am responsible for these. By that responsibility mm-hmm. is multifold, right? One is I'm responsible for them. I'm the only one that's going to take care of them. But also I, I brought them in existence in the first place. So in that way, her position and this used position become more aligned, right? She is the god of these tomatoes, right? She chose... Mm-hmm. To bring them into existence in this place in this time, so much in, much like she's complaining to her God, you can imagine. I don't know if there's a poem from the tomatoes' point of view, uh, you know, sort of to the gardener saying, "Why are you Why are you trying to grow me in ba- in Vermont? <laughs> I'm not a Ver- Why are you doing this? Why Why Why, yeah, why, why, why bring me yeah. forth into the world to get the spotted leaf? Yeah, it's so. It was really interesting reading all of the Vespers poems and looking at her turning this idea of an evening prayer onto its head and that these are not words of devotion. They're really words of like uh, questioning the existence of something (laughs) that's divine, questioning the existence of meaning or a point to it all, um, really highlighting the hardships of life and the not cruelties of nature, but just the ways that nature is indifferent to us. Um, the, the Vesper before this one, um, I think it's relevant starts off. Once I believed in you, I planted a fig tree here in Vermont country of no summer. It was a test. If the tree lived, it would mean you existed. By this logic, you do not exist. <laughs> if you're a witch, you drown. <laughs> Is she made of wood? No, there's a certain yeah. there's certain a circularity to that kind of a logic. Like that's a very that's a very good representation of like a child's logic mm-hmm. or like a child's understanding of divinity. Like, right. If if a divinity exists and it is good, ergo, bad things happening are contra evidence. Right. Um, to the thing existing itself. And, you know, the thing that in reading this several times and trying to put on my close reader's hat, which I enjoy enjoy this process so much because for me it opens up possibility. I'm not trying to get to a right... There's no right answer to poetry. There's no like, yeah, you got it, and there's 100% (laughs) as as much as your um, English 101 professor would would say otherwise. You know, what is it that sticks with you? The thing that, that comes to me is it's the... Like you kind of intimated before, it's the earliness of the darkness... Mm-hmm. Rather than the darkness that seems troubling, would she actually feel better if the darkness came on schedule, or is it not an ex- like I think about this a lot? Like, would I feel better about my mortality if I knew that I was going to die on, on, on the actuarial table, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'm going to be 87 and a half, right? If I knew that, would would that help, no. or would it just would I just think it would help? Or I, I would at least get to 74 and after. Like, at least no early darkness. Darkness can come, you know, around dusk when it should. 
Would that make me feel better? I don't think so. Like, it's not the earliness of the darkness here, but she's almost setting herself up to, by planting tomatoes in Vermont, knowing the darkness comes early, knowing the vicissitudes of weather and how unhospitable they are to tomato plants, almost setting herself up to experience the earliness in a different kind, to, to exaggerate the earliness. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think in a way, exaggerating the earliness is a way of trying to glance off the side of the regular darkness almost. <laughs> like, I'm going to be mad about the early darkness, so I don't have to worry about that, the fact that darkness is coming no matter what. Even if it's not early, it's still coming. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I think about that now. Like, would she feel better if she made the tomato plants blossomed and bore fruit and she got to can a whole bunch of them and then darkness still fell? Probably not, right? Yeah. Probably not. No, because you still have the darkness. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, or, uh, well, or maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you at least have done the thing, right? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Do you want to hear the early darkness response? Yeah, let's hear okay. it. I, I don't know this poem at all. Yeah. It'd be fascinating so to hear So this it. is page 287 in the big collection. And I think this is darkness, you know, speaking back to her. Um, how can you say earth should give me joy? Each thing born is my burden. I cannot succeed with all of you. And you would like to dictate to me. You would like to tell me who among you is most valuable, who most resembles me. And you hold up as an example the pure life, the detachment you struggle to achieve. How can you understand me when you cannot understand yourselves? Your memory is not powerful enough. It will not reach back far enough. Never forget you are my children. You were not suffering because you touched each other, but because you were born, because you required life separate from me. Mm. And there's something like Buddhist in there, you know, that you hold up as an example, the pure life, the detachment you're struggling to achieve, your suffering is because you needed to be separate from the source, like separate from the, the place you came from. Yeah, that you were born, right? Yeah. You know, it's like Johnny Ringo. Uh, There's that great hole in the middle of them. Mm -hmm. Where did it come from? From being born. Interesting there, too, that the darkness in the soil is sort of saying, what you put in me is your responsibility. Mm -hmm. I'm not blanketly obligated or able to sustain all of your dumbass choices, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to figure out your own stuff. I'll do what I can, but I can only... Do what I can. Yeah, that's that's amazing to think that holistically. Like, in that regard, my favorite poem of all time, my favorite poet of all time is Walt Whitman, mm-hmm. and my favorite poem of all time is Song of Myself, where he tries to, you know, get his arms around creation. Right. The diff- There's a similar kind of like structural project here of like inhabiting the world, but whereas Whitman tries to sort of, I don't know, like sub like eat the whole, like put the whole thing into his body and become uh-huh. like, look for me in your book. Like I'm everywhere all the time. I'm even you reading this poem 200 years from now. Gluck's saying she's not everything and she knows she's not everything, but still trying a multi-perspective worldview. You know, so an, aggregate, an, an aggregation of limitation is still bigger than the perspective of one. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that perspective, and then the trick is, is that perspective, is that the tomato? Right. Is that the tomato you're trying to grow? Is that the thing you're trying to do? Like, what are you trying to do with that multiple perspective? And frankly, I think it is, you know, being psychoanalyzed by the ground, by the birds in the air to some degree is like seeing seeing how your position is seen differently through things that don't even have eyes to see. And can you infuse them with your own kind of genius to do some different kind of work that hasn't been done before. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, stuff, there's man. some real, it's amazing stuff. I think attempting to understand her, the whole of herself is greater than the sum of its parts. Um, mm-hmm. that's happening and the whole of her experience in the world as greater than the sum of its parts by like, here's my failure to grow tomatoes and it's about to get dark real early and I'm sad, mm-hmm. but what would the darkness say to me about this? And there's one later, yeah. um, from the perspective of the harvest and the harvest is saying mm-hmm. to them like, yes, this is really hard, but it is at once the gift and the torment. And mm-hmm. I was like, man, if I ever, if I needed like another poetry line tattoo, I think I might just get <laughs> <laughs> at once the gift and the torment or like remind yourself yeah. of this once a day, whatever the thing is that day. <laughs> 
you know, that that's hard. It's at once the gift and the torment. Like she's so in this work of trying to understand her, I think, subjective experience and then step back and ask what would it look like from a different angle? And instead of taking the position of other people in her life or just trying on, you know, a variety of philosophies, she's taken here these lenses of um, what is it like from the tomatoes perspective? What is it like from the lilies perspective? What is, what would the harvest say? There's one from the sunset. My tenderness Mm. should be apparent to you in the breeze of the summer evening and in the words that Mm. become your own response. Mm. Like just, whew. Yeah, that 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 torment and the gift is, I think, a useful coda, but also an anthem of a lot of it, which is the thing is the thing, and it it's you know it's a double edged <laughs> thing, like the exacto knife. It both cuts and cuts. It cuts, <laughs> and you either use it to cut productively, but you also got to watch out for knowing that it it cuts enough to kill, and wielding it responsibly, properly, mindfully, you can get through mostly, you know, you can do things that you couldn't have done otherwise um, and maybe live something like a more fuller existence. Like there's a way in which physical survival of the tomatoes is really in, in plants and nature. What she's trying to figure out is how can I survive philosophically? Like my body's going to do what it's going to do, Right. But how can my consciousness, my soul, my intellect, my morality, how can it survive even within what I know about myself? Mm -hmm. And so this tension between the enduring things and the temporal things, like my my darkness is going to come early or not. How can I, what tomato am I going to grow? What decisions am I going to make? How am I going to understand where I am, who I am? in that moment, right? And not look too much to the foreshadowing, Mm -hmm. not too much look to the coming of the dawn or the sunset or the falling of the maple leaves. And, you know, it's kind of, there's a little hint at the end of here about the maple, right? Well, in when you, the time to harvest maple syrup is in the winter. So if you think of things as being of their own time and being in the right place and being, you know, more in tune with who you are and where you are and what you are, there are other fruits to harvest, <laughs> right? If you look around yeah, I, in a different kind of a way. I'm glad that you mentioned Rilke as one of her influences because there is something very familiar about that yeah. perspective to me in her work. Live in the and question, exactly, right? Isn't that yeah, the Rilke? Yeah. Try to love the questions like because even if you could get the answers, you wouldn't understand them. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't understand them. Right? And we sort of understand this too because she says, I doubt you have a heart in our understanding of that mm-hmm. term. She has, she gets at what she gets that there's known unknowns, right? And then there's unknown unknowns. But one known unknown is what is the nature of the quote unquote heart of divinity? And that is the soul, the thing about the, how they care, how this thing cares about this thing that they have created. Just, just like the tomato doesn't understand what the gardener wants from them. And if they did, they wouldn't understand it because the tomato has no conception of its own eating, right? <laughs> it just it just can't <laughs> in any particular way. So in that regard, there's a nice circularity of it. I could do this all day, Rebecca. Thank you for humoring me. Oh, I enjoy this man. a great deal. Thank you for the introduction to Louise Glick. I'm so glad she's in my life now. Uh, show notes, bookriot.com slash listen. We'll put a we'll put a link into Vespers there. There's a really good piece. It's paywalled, unfortunately, that um, was in the New Yorker by by Dan Jason um, on the occasion of the publication of that volume have in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll put a link there. Was it any linkable stuff? And we'll we'll figure out in the DMs. Um, but until until the next time we have our world cracked open by a poet, Rebecca. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.